Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Just one single case of missed pediatric physical abuse I consider to be a travesty. The sad state of affairs is that thousands of cases of pediatric physical abuse are missed on initial presentation to EDs across North America every year. And a small but significant minority of these children die. In fact, 20 to 30% of children who died from abuse and neglect had previously been evaluated by medical providers for abusive injuries that were not recognized as abuse. We have to get better at identifying these kids when there's still something we can do to protect them before it's too late. So to help us in our goal to identify and manage these children appropriately, with the help of TREK, Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids, we have with us two brand new guest experts on emergency medicine cases. Dr. Carmen Coombs and Dr. Allison Holland. Dr. Coombs, welcome to EM Cases. Uh, Thank you, Anton. I'm very happy to be here. And Dr. Holland, welcome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the invitation. So before we get into the first case, Dr. Coombs, could you just tell us a little bit about your professional background? Of course. I am currently an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital in Pittsburgh of the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I am specifically trained in pediatric emergency medicine, but I hold a dual appointment in both the Division of Pediatric Emergency Medicine as well as the Division of Child Advocacy. And Dr. Holland, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your professional background? Sure. So I am also trained in pediatric emergency medicine, and I work at the IWK Health Center in Halifax, which is our tertiary care children's hospital in Nova Scotia. And I work both in the emergency department there as well as with the suspected trauma and abuse response team. Let's jump right into our first case. A four-month-old, otherwise healthy boy presents to your ED with his mother with the chief complaint of diarrhea. There are no contacts, no recent travel, no change in diet, no fever, no vomiting, and no blood. On exam, he appears well and no apparent distress. His vitals are normal, and you pull up his onesie to examine his belly, and his abdominal exam is benign. You're pretty sure this kid has a benign illness. You have a conversation with mom. And as you're starting to give discharge instructions, you notice on the baby's left cheek, there's a one centimeter bruise. You ask mom how the bruise got there, and she said she doesn't know. So this infant seems to have a relatively minor injury of some sort. There's this little bruise on their cheek, seemingly unrelated to the diarrhea. Dr. Coombs, why is it important to consider abuse even in cases of seemingly minor injuries? Well, it's extremely important, Anton. There are minor injuries, what we call sentinel injuries, that are early markers of physical abuse. These typically are injuries that can be seen with the naked eye. A bruise is certainly the most common sentinel injury, but they also include other things like intraoral injuries, subconjunctival hemorrhages, and burns. Fractures are also considered by some people to be sentinel injuries. It's important because these are minor injuries, but they really have major significance. They provide an opportunity for us to intervene before more serious injury occurs. Unfortunately, sentinel injuries are often only described after a more serious injury has been identified. And there are several good studies now that show that somewhere around 25% of abused infants had prior sentinel injuries. 
versus non-abused infants, which really these type of injuries are very rare in. So there's a few things that you said in there that I'd like to highlight. One is subconjunctival hemorrhages. So in adults, we see subconjunctival hemorrhages all the time, and they're rarely due to abuse. In little kitties, are these something that you see quite common related to abuse? Yes. A subconjunctival hemorrhage in an early infant should really be thought of as a bruise on the eyeball. We'll talk more about it later, but bruising in early pre-mobile infants is very rare. And I find it really helpful to think of a subconjunctival hemorrhage simply as a bruise to the eyeball. It can be due to blunt trauma. It can also be from an infant trying to breathe, but that's the right approach to it. The other injury that falls into this classification is a frenulum injury, which again, I think that it's easiest if you think of this as a bruise to the frenulum, especially in a young infant. But I think to come back to your question, too, about, you know, these relatively minor injuries, but these sentinel injuries we really think about as being potential precursors to escalating and future abuse. So as Carmen was saying, in the emergency department, when we pick up these very minor injuries that in and of themselves may not be terribly clinically significant, we are picking up on a great opportunity to potentially prevent the worse outcomes of escalating abuse. So there was one great study that looked at abusive head trauma and showed that about a third of kids who end up being diagnosed with abusive head trauma, which is a very significant injury with significant sequelae, about a third of them were seen by healthcare professionals previously with some kind of injury. That's right, Anton. And in your introduction, um, you gave that horribly tragic stat that between 20 and 30 percent of children who die from abuse previously had injuries that weren't recognized as abuse. And Allison said, we all know that abuse is a cycle and that violence escalates, that recognizing and responding appropriately to these seemingly minor injuries really does protect kids. And unfortunately, failure to recognize and respond to these injuries puts kids at risk to suffer repeated abuse and injury and potentially even death. Yeah, it kind of reminds me as an analogy to the subarachnoid hemorrhage sentinel bleed. You know, in, in adults, when we see a someone with an abrupt onset headache, but their GCS is 15, they look perfectly fine. The reason we want to pick up that sentinel bleed isn't because the sentinel bleed itself is so dangerous, but because the next bleed they have could kill them. That's exactly it. I think that's a really good analogy. All right. I just want to get a little bit more into the specifics of why learning to detect and manage non-accidental injury is so important. So I think that we all intrinsically know that it is a good thing to stop abuse in kids. That in and of itself is just bad. But there is good data to show that there are short and long-term implications for children that have been abused. So just to give you a little bit of context, in Canada, when adults are asked about their history, about one-third of Canadian adults will say that they've been abused in some way at some point during their childhood. So just think about that for a second, because that means that, you know, when you look around at the grocery store, one third of people have been abused. When you look around, when you go to a concert, one third of those people have been abused at some point in their life. And when you think about the kids coming through our door, about one third of them will have experienced some kind of abuse by the time they reach adulthood. And so that's an epidemic of massive proportions from a public health standpoint. 
So we know that there are short-term implications in terms of you know, mental health issues, behavioral issues for kids as they grow up. I think about one case of a school-age child that I saw who had a femur fracture and then you know, a few years later now as a teenager has significant conduct disorder problems, mental health problems, and so on. So really those short-term impacts. Yeah, it's interesting that you say the, the mental health problems. You know, working in a community hospital where we see both adults and children, inevitably, I would say it's near 100% of patients that I see. You know, if you take away the schizophrenic patients and you have the rest of the really sick psychiatric patients that we see in the emergency department who end up needing admission, it seems like almost all of those patients with horrible depression, horrible anxiety, personality disorders, almost all of them have a history of abuse as a child. We also know that adolescents who are the victims of abuse are much more likely to engage in risk-taking behavior. They also have higher risks of depression, of drug use. And again, those are kind of the more long-term effects. But if you bring it back even more simply, we want to pick up that baby who has a bruise or that young child who has a fracture before he or she suffers acute head trauma which could lead to their death or long-term neurologic impairment. So there are short-term complications as well as long-term complications. All right. So management of these children with physical abuse is actually pretty complex. It's time-consuming and requires sort of a team effort. So Dr. Holland what is the emergency nurse and doctor's responsibility in particular? In other words, what is the expected scope of what we need to do in the ED when faced with a potential abuse situation? So I think, first of all, it's very important to know that absolutely anyone on the team can report concerns of child abuse. So that doesn't necessarily mean it always has to be the physician. If your triage nurse has suspicions of abuse, if your bedside nurse has suspicions, if your pharmacist has suspicions, anyone on your team can report child abuse. But I think to try and break it down in terms of what the role in the emergency department is, we have to think, first and foremost, we are emergency medicine physicians. So we need to manage the acute issues. We don't want to forget that we're managing our ABCs first. We're doing acute injury and acute wound management and dealing with all of that. You have this other issue that you absolutely need to deal with, but we are still emergency physicians and need to deal with that acute piece. And then the next thing is to just think about abuse. The missed cases of abuse aren't missed because somebody didn't do the appropriate blood work or you forgot what images go in a skeletal survey. That's not where abuse is being missed. Abuse is being missed because it's not thought about in the first place. So if the only thing that you take out of all of this is I'm going to think about abuse every time I see a kid in front of me, I think that that is a huge piece of what we need to be thinking about. And then the piece that follows from that is to report. So manage the child you have in front of you the way you would any other patient with their acute presenting issue. Think about abuse as a potential cause of that issue and report it when you think of it. All right. So really what it comes down to then is the most important thing is just thinking about it. So we pick up the cases. Absolutely. Uh, you definitely have a responsibility to report it. Um, you should be considering the differential diagnosis as well. 
you should investigate what's medically necessary. And in different jurisdictions, they'll have different expectations of how much you do that work up. We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast. And then to ensure safety and proper follow-up admission if necessary. We've already mentioned that thinking about abuse is probably the most important thing. When it comes to thinking about abuse, we should really know about the most important risk factors for child abuse and neglect. So Dr. Coombs, can you go through for our listeners what some of the most important risk factors for abuse and neglect are that might raise your suspicion or put us on high alert for the possibility of of child maltreatment? Of course. When we think about risk factors for child abuse, we tend to think of them in kind of three different categories, things that relate to the child, things that relate to the caregiver, and things that relate to kind of their family or the environment in which they live. Really, in terms of the child, the most significant risk factor is young age. As we've discussed, unfortunately, most of the severe cases of child abuse really do occur in the youngest children. And in fact, 80% of child abuse fatalities occur in children who are less than four. In terms of the caregiver risk factors, when children are being cared for by a caregiver who has mental health problems, who has a history of substance abuse, we know that those things place that child more at risk. Is it true that parents who have themselves been abused are more likely to then abuse their children? That is true. That is true. If the caregiver is a former victim of abuse or neglect as a child themselves, they are unfortunately more likely to repeat that cycle. The other big risk factors that we think about are when children are living in homes with domestic violence in them, as well as families who have had prior CYF involvement. I just want to state here, Anton, although I think that it's definitely important to consider the risk factors for child abuse, we do need to be a little bit careful about this because it's important to recognize that no child is immune to abuse, that child abuse truly does affect children of all ages, of all races, and of all socioeconomic classes. And importantly, we actually know from studies that cases without obvious risk factors are more likely to be missed. And so I think that it's very important that while we look at risk factors, that we don't overemphasize the importance of these and that we really do take a uniform approach. One way of thinking of the presentations of abuse are the six Bs. So this will kind of be a theme through the podcast. We've already talked about one of the Bs, bruises. Dr. Holland, can you go through for us what the six Bs are in terms of the typical presentations of abuse? Sure. So I think that list of six Bs is a useful mnemonic. So we're talking about bruises, and we'll get into the details around which bruises are more concerning than others. Breaks, so fractures. Bonks, which would be a head injury. Burns, bites. And baby blues, which I think is a really important one because it refers to what can be somewhat vague symptoms that we see in babies in terms of irritability, persistent crying, vomiting, that kind of thing, but that baby that is nonspecific but concerning presentation. I think the thing that I want to highlight for this is that absolutely any injury can be caused by abuse, and we're going to talk about some of the features that would make it more or less likely, But and no injury is pathognomonic for abuse. So there isn't sort of, you know, if you see this injury, it absolutely must have been caused by abuse. There are certainly ones that are more concerning, but any injury can be caused by abuse and no injury is always caused by abuse, which I think is an important take home. 
And then we've already talked about infants with sentinel injuries and the nonspecific presentations for infants, which is important to highlight as well. Absolutely. Okay. So just to review there, the six Bs are bruises, and those are the most common thing you'll see when it comes to abuse. And we'll be talking about this again. If you don't cruise, you don't bruise. Breaks, so fractures, bonks, like bonks in the head, head injuries, burns, bites, and baby blues, that just sort of nonspecific irritable child should raise your suspicion. And again, it's important to remember that there's no injury that's pathognomonic for abuse. Any injury could potentially be abuse. So it makes it a little bit difficult. I'd like to talk now more specifically about history taking. You know, I find my heart rate going up in situations where I might suspect child abuse because the history taking is a sort of a very delicate skill. The last case I can remember a physical abuse, I picked up the chart. It was a young kid with a mid-femur fracture. And just right away, I thought, hmm, could this be abuse? And even with that situation, I feel my heart rate going up because I'm pretty uncomfortable with knowing exactly how to approach these kinds of cases. So before we get into the specific historical clues, how do you suggest we approach the history when we're faced with the situation where we might have a suspicion for abuse? My approach, Anton, is really to be very direct. I try to be very non-judgmental, and I'm certainly never accusatory in my interactions with a family because that truly doesn't help anybody. I think that asking open-ended questions is definitely critical, and you really want to avoid suggesting possible explanations that could account for the injury. You don't want to say things like, did he fall down the stairs or, you know, suggesting kind of possible mechanisms. You really want the family to be able to relate the story to you. Make sure that you document who provided the history. I always try to say, you know, the history is provided from mom. I also will take note of who else is in the room. And I think that's a really important part of the potentially legal and child protection investigation later on. Allison and I were also talking that I think that the how much you talk to the child is a little bit different in Canada versus in the United States. I typically do talk to especially an older verbal child. I'll ask that child some basic questions as I would with any patient about what happened, a little bit more of the situation. Depending on the exact situation, who else is present, it may or may not be appropriate to talk to the child alone. I'm certainly not a forensic interviewer. I don't get into a lot of detail, but it is helpful for me if an older child can give a history. I do think this is an area where we see a little bit of variation in practice in terms of how much forensic detail somebody might go into into the emergency department. I tend to think about the information that you want to get from the history in the ED as you know, what you need to manage the acute medical issues and what you need to decide whether or not you're going to report. In an older child, I agree, it may be entirely appropriate to interview them separately the way, you know, you would an adolescent for a HEADS interview, um, you know, certainly a verbal child. That may be something that you're able to do. But I think in the emergency department, your minimum data set is what do you need to manage the acute medical issues and what do you need to know to decide whether or not you're going to report this? All right. So just to review there a little bit, you want to start with open-ended questions, just like you would with any patient, actually. And remember that you don't want to try and lead the witness, so to speak. 
the timing of the injury is very important, who was present, and remember to, to document exactly who's providing you with what information. Remember that all of this that you document could end up in court later, and it's very important that you document in, in the most objective way as possible. That's correct, Anton. I even find that sometimes it's helpful to document certain statements that the parent or child may make in quotation marks. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we've talked about sort of a general approach to the history, the sort of kinds of questions you need to ask, and a little bit about documentation in terms of the history. Dr. Coombs, what are some of the clues on history that you might be dealing with an abused child? So let's say you haven't suspected, especially a child abuse case. What are some of the clues that might trigger you? Like we were saying, the most important thing is just to think about it and be able to identify it. So what are some of the most important historical clues that can trigger us to think, hmm, this might be a case of abuse? When there's a child with a significant injury, when the history is either absent, there's no history of trauma, or the history is vague, that always raises concern. Most caregivers or children can describe exactly how an accidental injury occurred, and they can give quite a bit of detail. So when when the history is really either absent or vague, that concerns us. Another thing is certainly a history that changes or evolves over time or maybe when you're getting different histories about what happened from different people. I think that two of the most important things in young infants is an injury that is not consistent with the history in terms of mechanism. An example would be a two-year-old who reportedly spilled hot tea on herself, but on exam, her burn is more of an immersion pattern rather than the expected splash pattern that you would expect for a typical accidental scald burn. Also, an injury that is not consistent with the developmental ability of the child. As an example, a two-month infant with a femur fracture who reportedly rolled off the bed. Well, two-month-olds don't roll. So that history is not consistent with what we know that child should be able to do developmentally. Another big red flag in the history is a delay in seeking medical care. We always worry when a child presents two or sometimes even three days after an injury, why didn't that caregiver seek appropriate care at the time? Sometimes there are reasons, but certainly a delay in seeking medical care always makes us worried. And then the last thing that I would say is if there's a history of past injuries in this child or if there are unexplained injuries or deaths in other siblings that you're aware of. And one of the things I would highlight from what Carmen said, too, in that list is It's the developmental stage of the child as opposed to the age of the child that we're thinking about. So you may have a four-year-old child who is developmentally delayed and not able to sit up and roll on their own. And so you're going to be thinking about that child in much the way you would any other non-ambulatory child. And so it's development as opposed to age specific. Mm. So it's key then to think about the developmental stage of the child and see whether what they're presenting with is consistent with that. I mean, I got to say, as a general emergency physician, sometimes I forget the developmental stages exactly and I have to go look them up. But that's something that's a good thing to review every now and then if you're not seeing a lot of kids. And, you know, I think that developmental stages are a bit of a bugaboo for all of us trying to remember exactly that. So I often will just ask the parent, what is your child able to do? which helps me decide what seems to be appropriate. Mm, That's a good pearl. So just to review there, in terms of the key clues in the history, 
that the patient in front of you might be a victim of abuse. One is absent, vague, or changing history. Next is injury that is not consistent with the history in terms of mechanism or developmental ability of the child. And lastly, any delay in seeking medical care. Those should all automatically trigger you to question, could this be abuse? With all these miscases of child abuse, there comes a question of whether we should be screening every single child that comes into any emergency department or whether we should just be screening those where we have some sort of suspicion in the first place. Of course, this is going to change things vastly in terms of hospital protocols and how good we are at picking these things up. So, Dr. Holland, how do you recommend that we do screen for child abuse in the ED? So when we think about a screening test, it needs to be very sensitive. So we need to be picking up the vast majority of cases with a screening test. It also shouldn't have a terribly high false positive rate. That wouldn't be very efficient to use as a screening test. So I think we need to hold screening tests to a very high standard. That is, we need to have a really good evidence base to support screening. And unfortunately, in detecting child abuse, there really hasn't been any screening test that's really stood up to that high level. So there have been studies looking at checklists, at red flags in EMRs, and trigger tools, all of which sound really great, but either have not been sensitive enough, that is, they're not picking up enough, or they have a high false positive rate. And so there just hasn't been anything that's come out that's been really widely adopted that has had sufficient evidence to support it as a screening tool. So I think your screening is not really what we're looking at. You're doing a head-to-toe exam on all your infants that come in, and you're using these questions that we've talked about and these clues on history and physical exam to guide you. It's not truly a screening test, but I think that's the approach we have to use. I agree. I think that in the emergency department, it really does come down to take a good history, do a good physical exam, including a complete skin exam. So if we come back to the case that we talked about at the very beginning, we sort of examined this baby by just kind of lifting up the onesie and maybe poking around the belly a little bit. It's really important to completely undress that baby, take off that onesie, get that diaper off, Look at every inch of skin on that baby. They're not that big. It won't take you that long. And even older kids, Anton, this is something that I get really frustrated with in every emergency department that I've worked in. We just need to get each child undressed and in a gown so that we can really look at their skin. It's a great way to start. It's easy to do, but it's something that I think that we all still struggle with. Okay, so we've talked about those historical clues. So as long as we're aware of those... And we ask about those. And then when it comes to the physical exam, just like we all learned in medical school, any pediatric patient needs to be examined head to toe, no matter what their complaint. And it's not just for medical reasons that we want to examine a child head to toe. Sometimes you're going to pick up abuse knowing those key historical clues. But sometimes there'll be nothing on the history that gives you any clue that it might be abuse. And so it becomes so important to examine head to toe every kid that comes to the emergency department, because sometimes you're only going to pick up the clues to abuse on the physical exam. 
I think it comes back a bit to those risk factors that you were talking about before too, Carmen, because, you know, we have these risk factors, things that might tweak us to think about abuse in the first place. But if our practice is the same with every single person that walks through the front door, so you're not just doing a skin exam because there was a risk factor that tweaked you. You're just doing a skin exam on every single child that comes through your emergency department. That is your practice. You're so much less likely to miss something. That's a great point, Allison. Yeah, that's your screening test, doing a head-to-toe physical exam. There you go. I agree. All right. So I want to get a little bit more into detail about the physical exam. What are specifically some clues on physical exam that a child may be suffering from physical abuse? We'll talk about the nuts and bolts of specific injuries, but there are... There are a few kind of general guiding principles that I think can be helpful on this. First of all, and I know we keep saying this, but we cannot emphasize this enough, is that any injury in a young infant is concerning. Whether it's a bruise, whether it's a fracture, that's concerning. Obviously, when a child has multiple injuries, especially if those injuries are in different stages of healing, that's something that should prompt you to consider child abuse. We worry a lot about patterned injuries. And we worry about any significant injury that doesn't have a good explanation. So we're going to get into a little bit more detail about the exact injuries in a bit. What about the child's behavior? I mean, are there any clues from the child's behavior that they might be a victim of physical abuse? I think this is difficult since so many of our victims are so young But it certainly makes me more concerned when a child appears much more nervous or anxious than I would typically expect for a child his or her age with either the history taking or with a physical exam. A child who appears withdrawn or I've had some kids who obviously seem very fearful of someone who's in the room. Really the most common situation that I see that makes me concerned is an older child who avoids answering questions that that child should be able to answer. I told Allison several examples where, you know, children will talk very freely and openly about lots of different topics. But then when I come back to exactly what happened, the child really will avoid my question, will maybe sometimes look down or something like that. And every time that I go back to it, again, I kind of get this avoidance of offering an explanation for what happened that makes me most concerned. And I agree. I think that those things are very concerning. It's important to remember that the majority of kids that you see who have been abused probably won't seem that different or behavioral differences won't necessarily be that obvious. Just because a child is acting normally and seems to have a normal, appropriate interaction with their parent does not mean that we should not be concerned about abuse. Bruises are the most common abusive injury, and we've all heard before, if you don't cruise, you don't bruise. However, kids seem to bruise themselves all the time, kind of normally, at least the older kids do. What is it about a bruise or bruises that would trigger your suspicion for abuse? Bruises are really important, Anton. They're the most common manifestation of child abuse, and they're often the first sign of abuse. We know that they precede many abuse fatalities and near fatalities, and they really do present an opportunity for us to intervene and really protect this child. 
So in terms of which bruises we should worry about, I really try to put these in four categories. First, any bruise in a pre-mobile infant. Two, bruises that are in unusual or protected locations. Three, pattern bruises. And four, a child who simply has too many bruises. All right. So, so again, those four categories are, one, the pre-mobile infant. Two, unusual or protected area bruises. Three, pattern bruises. And four, just too many bruises. So Dr. Coombs, could you just kind of unpack those for us and give us all like the key clues and tips and tricks about those? Bruises in babies are are rare. We say if you don't cruise, you don't bruise. Most babies become mobile somewhere around five or six months of age. So when we talk about a pre-mobile infant, typically it's best to think about this as an infant who is less than six months of age. Although, again, as we spoke earlier, it's important to talk to that caregiver and really understand what this particular infant is doing. There's a great study that's been almost 20 years ago now by a group in Seattle where they looked at almost 1,000 children who presented for well-child care, and they just looked at their skin to see how many bruises do these kids have. And what they found was that in infants less than six months old, less than 1%, so 0.6%, of these infants had bruises. If you look at infants less than nine months old, only 1.7% of infants have bruises. Now, once kids start cruising and they start walking, bruising becomes very, very common. So it's really in these younger children that bruising is rare. There's another great study more recently by Mary Clyde Pierce in Chicago that looks at the same thing, only they look at the prevalence of bruising among infants in pediatric emergency departments. So this is our exact population. They looked at over 2,000 infants who were less than a year of age. And again, they just looked to see how many of these infants have bruises. That study found that infants less than five months old, the prevalence of bruising is right around 1%. And the vast majority of these babies presented with a chief complaint of some kind of trauma. If we go back to your case of the baby who presented with diarrhea, a medical complaint, only 0.2% of those infants who present with a medical chief complaint had bruising. The take-home from this really, Anton, is that bruising in infants is rare. It's really rare. Routine baby things like sucking on fingers, being swaddled too tightly, those don't cause bruises. If those cause bruises, more babies would have bruises. Many of these babies also have siblings. A classic example and of an abused child, the parents will say, well, the two-year-old did it or the dog did it. Most of these babies lived in homes with toddlers, with dogs, with cats, and most of these babies didn't get bruises. Bruises in infants are rare, and they always deserve consideration of child abuse. Also from the group in Seattle, there are a couple great papers looking at additional injuries that are identified in these young infants who seem like they just have an isolated bruise. And from the studies that we have, once these children undergo a thorough investigation with the physical exam, a skeletal survey, head imaging, trauma labs, almost half of these babies are identified to have additional injuries and or identified to be the victims of abuse. That's half, Anton. That's a lot, and that's a babies who have seemingly apparently isolated bruises. 
In terms of our four categories, the premobile infant, the unusual or protected area bruises, the pattern bruises, and too many bruises, we've just covered the premobile infant in great detail. I think that's really important. Next is the unusual or in protected area bruises. So Dr. Holland, could you go through for us what kind of bruises in terms of unusual and protected area bruises really do raise your suspicion for child abuse? Think about how a bruise happens. So a bruise happens because there's some kind of trauma to a blood vessel and blood leaks out into the tissues around it. So that blood vessel has to have some kind of trauma to it. And usually that happens because it's being squished between an external force of some kind and the bone underneath. That means that it's very unusual to see bruises in padded areas. So fleshy places like the upper thighs, the buttocks, the upper arms, those are unusual places to see bruises because they're padded. The other thing that's hard to do is bruise places that are recessed or protected. So within eye sockets, so eyelids, that kind of thing, or inside the ears or the neck because the neck is protected by the chin and the head. So places that are recessed and protected are unusual places to see bruises. In doing some of the background research for this podcast, I found this great rule called the 10-4 bruising rule. Uh, Dr. Coombs, could you tell us about that 10-4 bruising rule in terms of looking for some of these unusual bruises? Sure. This is, again, a clinical decision rule that Mary Clyde Pierce's group in Chicago came up with. So 10-4 basically describes bruises that are in high-risk area to be abused. So T stands for torso. That includes the abdomen, the back, as well as the buttocks and genital area. E stands for ears. We all know or we all should know that ear bruising is a very high-risk injury for abuse. And N stands for neck. The 4 actually gets at our first point with the pre-mobile infants where the 10-4 rule, the 4 is any bruising in an infant less than 4 months old. Now, some people have expanded this mnemonic to include faces as well, which I like. The F stands for frenulum, which, again, it's helpful in these young infants especially to think of a frenulum injury as a bruise to the frenulum. A is angle of the jaw. C is for cheeks. I is for eyelids. And S is for sclera, which, again, is a subconjunctival hemorrhage. So these really, these are the bruises that are really high risk in terms of location for abuse. So let's just review that rule, the 10-4 bruising rule, and you add faces to that. So 10, the T is for torso, E is for ears, N is for neck. The 4 refers to anywhere on a child four months of age or younger. And then the faces, F is for frenulum, A is for angle of the jaw, C is for cheek, E is for eyelids, and S is for sclera or subconjunctival hemorrhage. So in our four categories, we've so far covered premobile infants and we've covered unusual or protected location bruises. Next in our four categories are patterned bruises. So Dr. Coombs, could you just go f over for us what kind of patterned bruises we should be looking for? Any bruise that has an unusual pattern to it should raise concern. Oftentimes, we're able to identify the actual way that that pattern bruise was inflicted. The most common abusive pattern bruise that we see are things like 
whip marks or looped marks from a cord, linear marks from a child being beat with a linear belt. A handprint sign is something that I always really look at. You can frequency see bruising that you can really tell is in the size and shape of an adult handprint. That's obviously from being struck with an open hand. And then bite marks is something that we historically think of, again, as a pattern bruise that in certain situations should also prompt the consideration of abuse. All right. So that covers pattern bruises. So we've talked about premobile infant bruises. We've talked about unusual or protected area bruises. We've talked about pattern bruises. The last category of bruises to know about is too many bruises. Right. And this is simply a child who, when you look at them, you just feel like this child has too many bruises. One kind of helpful pearl, I think, on this is look at their shins. If I see a child who has what seems to be too many bruises for me, but I look at their shins and their shins, again, the most common place for accidental bruising in older kids, lots and lots and lots of bruising there. I'm actually going to feel a little bit more reassured that maybe this is just a normally a very active child. If I see a lot of bruising, maybe in some of the high-risk areas that we talk about, but nothing that's really specific, nothing that's really patterned, and I look at the child's shins and I see very few bruises there, that is going to make me, again, really worry a lot that this child simply has too many bruises. Great. That's a great pearl. I find when it comes to too many bruises, sometimes hard to figure out how old the bruises are. And, you know, of course, if you determine that you have a bunch of old bruises and a bunch of not so old bruises and a bunch of fresh bruises, you're maybe thinking this is more likely abuse. Dr. Holland, what's your take on trying to determine the age of the bruise? I think that's a really good question, Anton. I think that we are notoriously bad at dating bruises. The inter-rater reliability in terms of accurately dating bruises is very poor. And so I think the best practice is to clearly document what you're seeing as opposed to putting a time frame on it. So if you see a yellow bruise, call it a yellow bruise. If you see a purple bruise, call it a purple bruise. Things that might be more suggestive of something being more acute would be the presence of underlying tissue swelling. So swelling tends to appear more quickly and goes away with time. So you can comment on that. But in terms of deciding that a bruise is older or younger because of a certain color is something that's not recommended anymore. And I would suggest that people be very objective in describing what they're seeing. The color of a bruise can vary depending on the overlying skin tone, can vary depending on the underlying subcutaneous tissue. So there's so much that goes into how a bruise evolves over time that it's just best to be objective, write down what you see, and keep it clear. There are some medical mimics of bruises. Dr. Coombs, could you just go over for us some of the medical mimics of bruises that we should be on the lookout for? Of course. I think that the two most common things in infants that can be mistaken for a bruise are, one, Mongolian spots, which is also called congenital dermal melanocytosis, and then two, hemangiomas. So Mongolian spots are, you know, really kind of bluish green macular areas of skin discoloration. They're very common in certain populations in African Americans, Hispanic, and Asian infants. They're much less common in white infants. And that means that in particular, providers who deal primarily with a wider Caucasian population 
may not have seen any of these. And because of their hue, they can easily be mistaken for bruises. I think that the things that help you distinguish them from bruises, first of all, is kind of their characteristic color and the location. Most of these are on the buttocks and the lower backs. They're present from birth. And it's actually something that's important to document, I think, when you see this on a child who you're examining for whatever reason, because if we are concerned that it might be a bruise, but we can look back at a medical record and show that the same finding was present six weeks ago, then we're going to feel much more comfortable calling that a Mongolian spot. They shouldn't be tender and there shouldn't be associated swelling. If we look at the second, a hemangioma, this is something that I most recently got fooled on myself. I think that this can be quite challenging. Briefly, hemangiomas, they're congenital vascular malformations. Importantly, most of these are not actually evident. The deeper ones, they're not actually evident at birth, but shortly thereafter, they undergo a rapid growth phase. And so they can become apparent usually within the first few weeks to months of life. And they initially really can look like a bruise. Again, they shouldn't be tender. When you look at them, they do have a slightly different appearance because they're subcutaneous. And again, over time, certainly if there's any question, they're going to continue to proliferate and declare themselves. This is also a great opportunity to just stick an ultrasound on that lesion if there's any question about whether it may be a hemangioma or a bruise, and that should provide you a very quick, easy answer. I think to so with any presentation in the emergency department, you really want to consider a wide differential. And so what Carmen's talking about are some of those benign skin lesions that can look very much like bruises. Of course, there are lots of medical conditions that can also predispose you to bruising, and some of those you definitely want to know about in the emergency department. So you want to know if that kid has leukemia. You want to know if that kid has ITP. So I say this because I think there is quite a significantly long list of things that can predispose a child to bruising that your pediatrician or your subspecialist child abuse pediatrician is going to be looking for when they're seeing this kid in clinic or as an inpatient afterwards. But in the emergency department, it is definitely your job to rule out some of those acute predisposing conditions. So in the emergency department, you want to be getting your CBC, your renal function, your liver enzymes to be looking at some of those potentially underlying conditions that can predispose you to bruising. I think it's important to say, too, that you may be picking up something, a bleeding disorder, but just because a child has a bleeding disorder does not mean they haven't been abused. So not to sort of stop once you've reached a diagnosis and ignore your suspicions if they're still there. Classic premature closure. All right. So bruises aren't so simple. It's kind of like how Canadians in the far north that live amongst lots of snow and ice have like 27 different names for <laughs> snow and ice that we just call <laughs> snow and ice. <laughs> Ask a child abuse pediatrician about bruises. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> We're very passionate yeah. about it. <laughs> we'll have to come up with a whole new nomenclature for bruises. <laughs> So we've talked about bruises. One of the other six Bs is burns. Now we see a lot of kids with burns and the usual story is something like they pulled a mug of steaming tea off the counter onto themselves, something like that. What are the clues that a burn on a child might be the result of abuse rather than 
a pull of a mug off a counter or something. There are certain characteristics or patterns of burns and burn injuries that can make us very concerned for abuse. So most accidental burns in children, just as you mentioned, they're scald burns. And usually it's when a young child spills something hot on themselves. These burns should be located on the anterior body surface. They should be asymmetric. And usually they have obvious splash marks associated with them. If you see a scald burn that has more of an immersion pattern where they have very well demarcated borders, in particular when they're bilateral, those are really highly concerning for abusive burns. The classic, we call these immersion scald burns, is kind of the stocking distribution where a child is kind of dipped with their feet and their lower extremities into hot or boiling water. And they end up with these symmetric, circumferential, well-demarcated burns extending from the bottom of their foot up towards their ankles. You can also see this in kind of a glove distribution of a single or both hands if a child's hand is dipped again into hot or boiling water. In terms of contact burns, most accidental contact burns occur when the hot object is touched or grasped. So the best example is a young child who maybe grabs a hot curling iron. We're going to see the burn then on the palm or surface of the hand. They grab something. It's on the palm of their hand. Or perhaps they grab something and it falls. And so you can kind of see that, you know, kind of multiple irregular burns that that child sustains as that hot object falls. When we think about contact burns that should make us more worried about abuse, we think, again, about well-demarcated pattern burns that really mirror that hot object. Things like an iron, things like a hair blow dryer, different things that are used to cook. And those, if you think about a burn on the arm, you can almost envision how an angry caretaker could have held that arm down and then really applied direct sustained pressure with a cigarette, for example, that really leaves that well-demarcated burn. Most kids, when they get burned or when they come near something hot, they're going to withdraw, they're going to pull back. And so we see a lot more irregularity in them. So when you have that contact burn... I'm just getting all upset just thinking about the images of... It just seems see like unimaginable. Talks, when they dip the potty training toddler, they dip they dip them into hot water, their bum, when they have an accident is a super common one. Yeah. It's awful. I find it always very difficult when you then need to go and speak to the parents and to know exactly what to say to them because you, of course, don't want to be accusatory, but you have to let them know somehow that there's this suspicion. And if you're going to have this plan to do a workup and maybe admit the patient and get all these other people involved, there's got to be a way that you communicate this to the parents who might be the perpetrators of the abuse. It's a very difficult situation. So what tips can you give us when it comes to disclosing to the parents that you have a suspicion for abuse? You have definitely highlighted, Anton, this is a really, really difficult discussion to have. And no matter how many times I've had this discussion with parents, I still find this to be something that's very challenging. I think that my my best advice is that I try to be very direct and very professional. I often will say something like, 
as a physician, I worry when I see X, Y, and Z, and it makes me concerned that someone may have hurt your child. I definitely always refrain from being accusatory, and I clarify with the parents. I say, I'm not a police officer. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not Child Protective Services. I'm a physician. It's not my role to say who hurt your child, but it is my obligation to report it when I have a concern. And then I think what usually saves me at the end of these interactions is that I really try to then bring it back to the child and encourage the family to kind of focus on the child. I'll say something like, you know, right now we need to make sure that your child really gets the medical care that he or she needs and that he or she is safe. On to case number two. You see an 18-month-old girl in the ambulatory area of your ED who comes in with her mother who says she received a call while at work by their live-in nanny who told her that her daughter hurt her leg. On exam, she's curled up in her mother's lap, appearing afraid, and within a few seconds of observing her, you see an obvious leg deformity. You ask mom about the mechanism of injury, and she says she doesn't know. Primary and secondary surveys reveal no other signs of injury, and vital signs are normal. You order up some intranasal fentanyl and send her off for an x-ray. She comes back from x-ray, and it shows a displaced mid-shaft femur fracture. You ask mom if she can get the nanny on the phone so you can get some corroborating information. So, Dr. Holland, are there any specific types of fractures that in and of themselves should raise the suspicion for non-accidental trauma? In terms of types of fractures that might raise suspicion, we come back to a lot of the same historical features that we talked about on bruising. So does the mechanism match this type of fracture? Does the developmental stage of the child match this particular fracture? Are there multiple fractures at different stages of healing? So all of those history questions and physical signs that we talked about in terms of bruising apply here as well. The Canadian Pediatric Society is going to be putting out a new practice point quite soon that will outline the concerning features, and they actually match up with the TREC guidelines, so the Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids guidelines in terms of the types of fractures that we should be worried about. So any fracture in a child that's under a year is concerning. Just like the bruising. Just like the bruising. Any fracture, if you're non-ambulatory, any fracture is concerning. There's an exception to that that I'm going to talk about in a second, but let's just start with that. Fractures that have a higher specificity for abuse are rib fractures and classic metaphyseal fractures. So those often are referred to as corner fractures or bucket handle fractures. And really all that's referring to is what the x-ray projection is, but they're classic metaphyseal lesions or fractures. So any, any of those are concerning. A humerus or femur fracture in kids that are under 12 to 18 months are concerning, unless there is a very clear history of a significant mechanism to have caused those injuries. Multiple fractures, fractures at different ages, and then other injuries that are associated with the fractures. And again, just to drive home the point that there's no fracture that's pathognomonic for abuse. And then conversely, there's no fracture that definitely rules out abuse. The exception I want to talk about is toddler's fractures. So toddler's fractures are those 
non-displaced spiral fractures of the distal tibia. And the force required to generate that fracture doesn't actually have to be a significant force. It's really just a fall. When you think about how many times does a toddler fall in the run of a day, that may not be observed by a parent. A parent may not have seen that. The toddler may fall and get up immediately afterwards and still sustain a fracture. They may be crawling and walking at the same time. So it may not be that strange for a toddler to fall and then crawl for a little while. And it's only in retrospect that a parent might say, oh, yeah, that's right. I haven't seen them walk since midday yesterday. And that for a mechanism for a toddler's fracture is really not unusual. And so those are actually okay. The only other type of fracture that I would add to the list where I think that we should maintain a high index level of suspicion for abuse would be a skull fracture, particularly in a young infant. Certainly, most simple linear non-displaced skull fractures in infants are accidental. It may be a breastfeeding mom who falls asleep and drops the baby. But we do worry about abuse in these babies as well, and especially skull fractures that are complex or bilateral should at least trigger you to think about abuse. And when we talk about complex skull fractures, we're talking about more than one skull fracture, a fracture with a depressed component, a fracture that's open, so open skin, a fracture that causes diastasis of the suture lines, or occipital basilar skull fractures. One additional point, Anton, that I'd like to make here is that the two types of fractures that Allison noted that are actually have the highest probability for abuse in terms of the actual fracture itself being rib fractures, particularly posterior rib fractures, and the classic metaphyseal fractures, these fractures are often occult fractures that are not symptomatic and that are identified either, one, when we're doing our skeletal survey because we are concerned about abuse because of a separate concern, or not uncommonly, these might be findings, again, which are sometimes incidentally found on imaging. An example would be a four-month-old who presents with a respiratory illness and fever. You decide, I'm going to get a chest x-ray. And oh, by the way, on the chest x-ray, you notice healing rib fractures. That's an incidental finding. But again, that is an incidental finding that has tremendous significance. And that's absolutely a finding that is a responsibility of the emergency room provider to take the actions required to manage that appropriately. All right. So in terms of fractures, whether you find them incidentally or you're actually looking for them, there is no pathognomonic fracture for abuse. Any fracture that you find could be the result of abuse. However, there are some fractures that are more likely to be from abuse than others. Some of the ones we need to think about are rib fractures, particularly posterior rib fractures. The classic metaphyseal fractures are also something that should raise our suspicion. Multiple fractures, fractures of different ages, those are the kinds of fractures we should really be thinking about abuse in. And the two other important categories, Anton, that that Allison did highlight, again, just like a bruise, any fracture in a non-ambulatory infant or child as well as femur and humerus fractures in infants who are less than 18 months of age. And I think, Anton, too, it's important to remember that just like bruises, there can be underlying medical conditions that can predispose children to breaking bones or can look like broken bones on imaging. 
you know, just like with bruises, it's important to keep a wide differential. So thinking about things like, is this osteomyelitis? Is this a primary bone cancer? Is this a metastatic bone disease? Most commonly, the underlying bone condition that may predispose a child to breaking bones is osteogenesis imperfecta. But in fact, that's really uncommon, and a child that's presenting with a fracture is 10 to 20 times more likely to have been abused than to have osteogenesis imperfecta. So we need to think about those things, but really focus on the potential for abuse. On to case number three. A four-month-old boy presents to the ED with dad complaining that the child is irritable and just won't stop crying. On both a thorough history and physical exam, there isn't really much to find, and the boy is sent home. So, Dr. Holland, this is a pretty truncated story, but what in the story would trigger you to consider abuse? So I think there's two things to think about here. First of all, we know that abusive head trauma in infants may present with very nonspecific symptoms like crying and irritability. So the first and foremost, I think this child does need the thorough physical and history that you've done, really considering that as a possibility. The second thing is that if this isn't irritability from a head injury, we're seeing a parent who is distressed and may not be coping terribly well with a child who is crying. And if at the end of your assessment you feel that it's not sort of neurological irritability, this may well be normal baby crying. So what you have is an awesome opportunity to educate this parent, to talk to this parent about safe sleeping, what their supports are, what they do when this baby cries, how that parent is dealing with their frustrations, and a really fantastic opportunity for prevention as well. So we talk about the period of purple crying, which is a great program that talks about the fact that in this age group, we know that this is a really high-risk time, but we also know that it is a time when babies may cry for hours at a time, particularly in the evening, and that that may actually be normal behavior. And so providing parents and empowering parents to be able to cope with that is really important in terms of prevention. So I think with this case, you've got two things. First, having a very high index of suspicion for potential abusive head trauma and really doing the full medical assessment to rule that out. And secondly, once you've done that, using this as a really great opportunity for education and talking about supports for this family. Although some children with abusive head trauma have very dramatic presentations with apnea, with seizures, we know that a lot of these kids do present with either no symptoms at all or with very nonspecific symptoms like vomiting and fussiness, things that we see in the emergency department all the time and are essentially a dime or dozen for us. We know, though, that abuse is on the differential diagnosis of these infants, and it's really difficult to decide which infants am I going to go ahead and take that next step and do an evaluation for abuse versus which infants am I going to say, you know what, this is reflux or this is normal. And I just want to take this as an opportunity to highlight a study that was done by the chair of our department at Pittsburgh, which I think is really fantastic, and I think it's a landmark study. There's something called the PIBIS or the Pittsburgh Infant Brain Injury Score, and it looks exactly at this, at this group of infants between 1 
and 12 months of age who present to the emergency department with no history of trauma and with these nonspecific symptoms. And it tries to really create a clinical prediction rule to sort out which of these kids need imaging. And although the points, certainly the reader is welcome to look those up, but essentially they kind of came up with a few things that any abnormality on a skin exam in these infants should prompt intracranial imaging. So again, that baby needs to be undressed and we need to see because just the finding of a bruise in this baby would really, really increase your suspicion of abuse. Other things that are important are actually infants who are a little bit older. So infants who are more than three months of age. We know that a lot of these fussy babies vomiting, we see these kids at two, three, four weeks of age when there are a lot of other things that can present similarly, when parents are really trying to get used to these children and understand what's normal for them. The other important things in her study were a head circumference. I think this is critical. It's an easy thing to do, and we don't do it often, but measure that child's head circumference. If their head circumference is greater than 85th percentile for age or if it's disproportionately large compared to the rest of the body, that's a red flag. Also, she found that a hemoglobin less than 11 is also concerning in these babies. So essentially, you can kind of put these babies together with a little bit more information to really sort out who are we going to image and who are we not going to image, which of these infants really warrant further investigation. We are lucky in Pittsburgh because we have a rapid brain MRI that does a great job of detecting abusive head trauma. It takes less than 10 minutes, and so babies don't require sedation for it. That puts us in an easier position to do a lot of screening versus institutions you know, who are dependent on getting a CT of the head or admitting that child for a full sedated MRI. But I think that the point is still well taken. We have to consider abuse in these babies. And if they weren't more evaluation, they have to get that evaluation. It sounds like this Pittsburgh score might also be useful, even if we don't have rapid access to MRI, because it'll increase our pickup rate, but hopefully not radiate too many kids at the same time. Absolutely. And although I certainly understand the concern about radiation with a head CT, relatively still, the radiation associated with a head CT is really not that big. And I never want an emergency provider to worry so much about the radiation of a head CT that they don't get that proper imaging. I love the saying that says, it doesn't matter how much radiation you got if you were dead. All right. So it turns out in this case that three weeks later, the same four-month-old boy comes back to the ED, but this time with a tonic-clonic seizure, which settles after one dose of diazepam. And an hour later, the baby still has a significant decreased level of awareness. Let's assume that you've approached this patient the way you normally approach any four-month-old that comes in with a seizure. You check the glucose, you do your ABCs, you send them for imaging, and it comes back that they have a bleed in their head. You do all your usual management. Uh, you're thinking about raised intracranial pressure. You're getting the neurosurgery involved. What else do you have to do beyond those medical bits when it comes to, obviously, we're talking about abuse and this child may have been abused. What additional things do you need to be thinking about? So, Anton, I think this is where we start thinking about some of those occult injuries that it's not typical for us in the emergency department to start fishing for occult things that may not affect our management right now in terms of acute medical issues. 
But when we are suspicious of abuse, it actually is very important and very clinically relevant to look for some of those occult things. So this is a young baby with a intracranial bleed. And our working diagnosis is that the etiology of that bleed was potentially abuse. So this is a child that needs a skeletal survey to look for fractures. And I want to emphasize that a skeletal survey is not what we call a baby gram. You're not putting the baby down and taking an x-ray of the whole baby. A skeletal survey is a very protocolized series of images that looks at every bone in the body in a way that allows us to determine if there is, in fact, an occult fracture or not. So this baby needs a skeletal survey. And this baby needs blood work that is a trauma panel because this is a trauma patient. So looking at all the same things that you would do in a trauma patient with your CBC and your coags and your liver enzymes and your renal function, amylase, lipase, all those things. And potentially abdominal imaging, depending on what your lab work shows and what your physical exam shows. So a baby that has abdominal bruising warrants abdominal imaging and, you know, what exactly the cutoff is in terms of what your AST, ALTR for abdominal imaging is not exactly determined, but certainly you would want to consider doing abdominal imaging if you had elevated enzymes. As soon as this is now crossing your mind in terms of abuse, that it should be reported. And I think what we do in the emergency department is going to vary a lot depending on the resources that you have. And how sick the child is. And how sick the child is, absolutely. And so it may be that some of these things do wait. And so the skeletal survey may wait. We often do ophthalmologic exams, so dilated fundoscopy by an ophthalmologist. That's something that should be done in this child as well. Whether that's done in the emergency department or not, again, depends on the resources that you have. I know typically in my experience, the acute management of these babies happens in the emergency department. Everything else, so that skeletal survey, that ophthalmology exam, Repeat MRI, if there's any actual head injury on CT, will happen after this child has been admitted by the admitting pediatric team. For the kid who you don't suspect abuse, you use the PCARN rules to determine whether you want to do head imaging or not. What about the case that you have the slightest suspicion that there might be abuse in a kid that has a minor head injury that you wouldn't image? by the PCARN rules. How do you decide which of those kids need head imaging? In terms of head imaging for children in whom we suspect abuse, we really, again, have the lowest threshold in the youngest patient. So in general, any child in whom you suspect abuse for whatever reason, who's less than 12 months of age, should have some kind of head imaging. Whether or not this is a CT scan or an MRI doesn't really matter. But that child needs some kind of intracranial imaging In addition, children who are between one and two years of age in whom you suspect abuse, those children you should consider head imaging if they have any kind of subtle signs and symptoms of intracranial injury like vomiting, fussiness, they've just been more tired, kind of what we consider the soft signs. And then the other thing I also find confusing sometimes is when to do a skeletal survey. You know, you obviously don't need to do a skeletal survey for every kid that comes in with any kind of fracture. What are the specific indications for a skeletal survey? Generally speaking, under two years of age with any injuries that are concerning for abuse, those kids are going to get a skeletal survey. So again, your ambulatory kid with a toddler's fracture 
Probably not. Those kids really shouldn't get a skeletal survey. But generally speaking, under two and certainly under a year, any fracture at all, any injury that is suspicious of abuse, those kids are going to get a skeletal survey. Okay. So when it comes to imaging the head, any child under one year of age with any suspicion for abuse needs a scan. And then between the age of one and two, if they have any of the soft signs of head injury, they need a scan. And when it comes to a skeletal survey, it's really any kid under the age of two that you have any suspicion for abuse. I'd like to move on now to consultations, disposition, and reporting. So let's start with reporting. Dr. Holland, first, what is our legal obligation in Canada when it comes to reporting? And in what situations do you need to obtain consent from the parents? So the specific rules around reporting abuse vary a little bit between jurisdictions, but the basic fundamental principles are the same. Healthcare providers are required by law to report suspicions of abuse to whatever government agency it is that is mandated to look after the safety of children. So what we call that in different jurisdictions is different, you know, whether that's Department of Community Services, Children's Aid Society, Child Protective Services. It's different in every jurisdiction, but it's the government body that is mandated to look after the safety of children. That's who we're mandated to report to. And we're mandated to report any suspicion of child abuse. So you're not going to be penalized for reporting something without proof. In fact, the opposite is true, that if we don't report suspicions, that that is, in fact, something that we can be penalized for. So certainly in Canada, there is no sort of precedent for for a physician who reports genuine suspicions of abuse having any kind of legal ramifications extending from that. So we report to them. I think it's a critical distinction to make that we do not report to police. That, in fact, would be a violation of confidentiality. So whatever child protection services, what they choose to do with the information they have, and if they choose to liaise with police, that's fine. But as a physician, your responsibility is not to report to police. The other thing is that most tertiary care hospitals in Canada will have a child protection team, which consists of some pediatricians, nurses, social workers who look after the medical assessment and care of children where abuse is suspected. And hopefully most community emergency departments have access to that resource at their tertiary care center that they would usually refer to. That is a wonderful resource. Um, They can really help you decide what investigations to do acutely, whether or not this child needs to be referred or transferred. So a really helpful resource. But again, discussing a case with those folks is not the same as your duty to report, which is the legal duty to report to the government body mandated to look after child safety. Okay. And in terms of parental consent? So you don't actually need consent to report. And in fact, we typically don't do that. I think it is best practice, as we discussed earlier, to let the family know that you've reported. But you don't even have to do that. You don't have to tell a family that you've reported a case to the Child Welfare Services or Child Protective Services. But it's generally best practices to do that just in terms of maintaining an open relationship with that family. 
All right. And Dr. Coombs in the States, is it any different? I think that it sounds like things in the States are actually quite similar to that. I think that the most important thing to emphasize, it sounds like it's the same in Canada and in the United States, is that that reporting is based on suspicion that that child has been abused. It is not at the level of certainty and it is not at the level of proof. And I think that that's really probably one of the most important take-home messages from this episode. There are some differences. It is interesting. Um, In the United States, or at least in the state of Pennsylvania where I practice, there are certain cases where we are mandated to also report that to law enforcement, particularly in abused kids who have life-threatening injuries where we are required to report that. So that may be a little bit different. All right. So it might vary a little bit in terms of police reporting. And what about disposition? You know, how, how do you decide whether a child needs to be admitted to hospital, whether they can go home with the parents, whether they go somewhere else? How do you decide on disposition decisions? Generally speaking, there are a couple of pieces that are going to play into this decision. First and foremost is the safety of the child. And that's a decision that's going to be made in conjunction with child welfare services that you've called, whoever that is in your jurisdiction. They're going to be able to help you decide whether or not this child is safe to go home with family or not. Regardless of that, the child may need to be admitted if there's more medical workup that needs to be done. So if there's still a skeletal survey that needs to happen, if there is blood work that needs to happen, then that may need to happen as an inpatient. And so that child will be brought in as well. And there are many cases where we will actually bring the child in as an inpatient because we're not able to have an appropriate safety plan from the emergency department. And that's absolutely a a very common reason why we do bring these kids is simply to develop a safety plan. The bottom line is that it is very important to make sure that you have a safe place for this child to go and a safe follow-up plan. So even if they don't meet any indication for further medical workup that this is a child that's going to have an appointment with their pediatrician or is going to follow up with their family doctor or maybe who's going to see the child protection team in clinic later on, but to have a very safe disposition plan for this child. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. Holland. Thanks so much, Dr. Coombs. The insights you had into this particular topic were really quite amazing. It's just packed with so many pearls. If we can just take one thing away for our listeners is try and take all these pearls into consideration just to recognize abuse. If we can even just do that part of it, we're going to be saving many kids' lives. We're going to be saving possibly a lifetime of abuse, mental illness, chronic medical problems. Thank you so much, Anton. This is really a pleasure to be involved in this. And I really hope that physicians feel empowered with this information. We know that this is hugely emotionally charged. It's very, very difficult to think about anyone hurting a child. So if you just think about it and know what a huge difference you are potentially making in the lives of these kids, I hope that that's what people can take out of this going forward. We have a responsibility to protect these children who really are so vulnerable. We know that if we don't act and this child returns to that same environment, we know that they're at risk for escalating violence, for escalating injuries, and really for more serious injury and death. So this really is, I think, a a critical role. And I think that we need to step up to the challenge. Okay. If that doesn't change people's practice out there, I don't know what will. (laughs) 